Welcome to another episode of Introspectives. I'm Claire, one of your hosts. And I'm Sabrina, your co-host. Right, and we have a fabulous guest today. I mean, what isn't she, honestly? Like, she's a mother, she's a woman, she's first in many, many fields. Um, I can just go down the rap list, but I will let her introduce herself if she doesn't mind. Hello, I'm Mary Pia Harvey, and uh, it's interesting because my name sounds very French, and when people see me, they think, She's a black woman. Ooh, I wasn't expecting that. Um, and I'm a, a professional in the construction and property industry where um, black women are significantly underrepresented. There's probably less than 1% of the industry that does what I do. But as we go through today, I think more of me, who I am, where I've come from, will unfold. I don't want to spoil that by giving too much away now. <laughs> We're getting into it. I think uh, Sabrina is going to start us off with the questions. Yeah. Um, so this question is kind of like touching on your heritage. So in the Observe magazine, you shared that you were brought up by a single mother in Trinidad who was determined to give you the best education she had not received. You went on to a Catholic convent school. Then you went on to uni and got a scholarship. So can you tell us more about like how you grew up and what it was like? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start with a little story because th this makes me smile. Um, my mom told me that uh, I went to kindergarten and I started big school, as they call it, when I was five years old. Um, and I was in the first class and the teacher was doing ABC. And the school I went to was, was there was an, uh, an open plan building where the classes were side by side with no barriers. So you could almost look into another class and hear another teacher. And I looked into the class that was the one above me, that was to our right, and I fancied what that teacher was teaching because I had already learned A for apple, B for bat. So at five years old, I picked up my satchel, my bag, and I said to my teacher, I've done all of this already. I'm going into that class. And I literally, as serious as they come, walked into the next class to the horror of the teacher. And, and nothing happened. My mother was called in and... Um, the head teacher said, you know what, she'll find the class too difficult and she will go back. Well, actually, I didn't. And I stayed in that class. And that's why throughout primary school, I was always one year younger than my class peers. So I think my dear to be different, dear to be bold, started very young. I have an older and a younger brother. I'm the only girl in my family. My life as a child in Trinidad was very humble. My mom worked full time as a nursing assistant, but did not earn a lot. So we could only afford to rent a room at the back of someone else's house until I was 10 years old. My mom could not afford to pay childminders after a while. So from the tender age of eight, I had to care for my five-year-old brother when my mom went out to work which included dressing him, feeding him, and taking him to school with me. She worked her socks off to give me and my brothers the best she could, and she succeeded. 
As a child without my father ever living at home, I felt inferior to my peers. And I used to make up stories about the father I wished to have. I looked through my mom's album and I would cut out a picture of somebody next to a car in America who I thought could be my father and I would take it to school and show off. I never told my mom that, by the way. <laughs> Life was lonely because my mom was an only child and an orphan. So I had no aunties or uncles or cousins like my friends at school had. On her days off from work, she would pack a basket and take us to the botanical gardens or the beach by bus. At other times, she would take me to radio and television talent contests where I would sing and dance and I would win prizes. She also took us to the orphanages and homes for the blind and disabled children because she wanted us to share some of the little that we had with them and learn to respect and befriend those who were less fortunate than we were, not to stare at them and to laugh and to make fun of them. But for the fact that I was gifted, talented and won a scholarship, which provided funding for books, I would not have been able to afford to attend a convent secondary school in the way that I did. On the days when there was no running water in our house, I would have to make a half mile return trip to fetch drinking water before going to school. I have to leave home at 5.30 a.m. each morning just to ensure that I got a seat on the bus to get me to school on time. Life at secondary school was a real challenge for me. Many of the girls were wealthy and lived in big houses. They wore the latest fashion school shoes and went overseas for vacation. I wore the cheapest shoes my mom could afford. I only had two school shirts, one off, one on. I went nowhere on vacation and did not even have a television or telephone at home. We had a transistor radio at home with AM only. I didn't even know into my teenage years what FM was. <laughs> I was good at netball, sprinting, maths, French, Spanish, and singing. I composed my own calypsos and won school competitions. Sister Mary Patrice Simmons was my favorite teacher. I am still in touch with her today. She's 75 years old. Wow. I recall one day when I thought I had my Spanish GCSE exam in the afternoon. So I was at home studying. A car turned up outside my house and it was my Spanish teacher. So I asked her, what are you doing here? She said, your exam has started. She put me in the car, drove me to the convent. I sat the exam. I didn't have all the time my colleagues had, but I passed. Okay. <laughs> I A-levels, but I wasn't doing very well. The head teacher, Sister Anne-Marie, called my mom into the school to advise her to take me out so that the school results would not be tarnished by my poor performance. Yeah. My mom refused, and I thank her for that 
because that could have changed the course of my life. Outside of school and home, I spent a lot of my teenage years attending church prayer groups, meetings, and youth group. At 18, I won a scholarship to study quantity surveying in England, which was a dream. Uh, just uh, like trying to find my voice I know um well like first off I think me and Sabrina both agree on this like what a mother like yeah wow <laughs> I don't know I felt so so many emotions and I think I just kept him thinking about like what my grandparents experienced when they kind of grew up in Jamaica mm -hmm. and then kind of them coming to England, how they really kind of instilled the importance of education in us and why I valued it so much at school, just because I knew how hard education was to come by. So kind of listening through your experiences, I think, wow, we really do have it lucky these days and not enough of us appreciate kind of what people go through just to get an education. We do. And, and you know, um, my mum was more determined about making sure I had a good education because my older brother is autistic. So his education wasn't the way she would have liked it to be. And of course, in those days, nobody in Trinidad knew what autism was. Everybody who was different was called retarded. Mm. So it's only in later years that we discovered that the traits of learning challenges he had is described as autism. And of course, because my mom herself, being an orphan in a foster home, she was taken out of school to be a servant in the home. So they did not allow her to finish her education. And she was determined that the same thing would not happen to me. So that made her eat. And I think that's why she said no to Sister Anne-Marie. I don't think she understood what Sister Anne-Marie was talking about. And the fact that I wasn't doing very well didn't matter to my mother. Where would I come out and go? Would I be on the street? Isn't it possible that things could change? But also, my mother made the biggest sacrifice. Do you know, I had the privilege of thanking my mother for this face-to-face -face, rather than waiting until she dies and standing up giving a eulogy where she couldn't hear. And I actually said to her, Mom, thank you that when you had the opportunity to come to England on Windrush to do nursing, because your three children would have had to stay with three different families, you made the decision not to go to keep us together. I will sing that song for my mom day in, day out. Had she not sacrificed her own life in that decision for me, I would not be where I am today. So yeah. she is an amazing woman. Yeah, she sounds amazing indeed. Um, just as we segue into um, the, the third question, I just wanted to just emphasize that I mean, there's a reason why education was used as a privileged tool by the colonizer, right? But you know, it's a massive resource. And with autism, that is another topic that is very under-talked about even to this day. You're absolutely right. And I think that intersection between um, people of color having autism 
that's like a whole other story oh. and um for oh sorry did you say something and I talked over you oh no I was just Oh, okay. And I just wanted to say just for like my like our like US friends listening, um, Windrush essentially I'll I'll just boil it down. Essentially the UK government was like, We need help, come over here with various marketing messages. Then everyone came over here, worked blood, bones and sweat and tears and whatnot for work, and basically screwed everyone over and completely in denial today. We'll put a link to Windrush in the notes, but today is Mary's story, so we're not going to get too too much into that but so speaking of education um so <laughs> actually there are many articles with you in it because you have a very um uh prosperous career but so you shared in an interview that um you know you're often a black woman studying with mainly white men at mm -hmm. the university of greenwich mm -hmm. and um, regarding your first day you said the concept of who i was and where i came from was out of kilter and a colleague even asked you audac audaciously if uh, you lived in trees and ate bananas so mm -hmm. um how did you overcome that and stay focused on your studies? Can you um, tell us how you overcame that and how you focus on your studies? Well, my reaction, first of all, was just one of utter shock. I can't describe it in any other way. Um, I wasn't sure whether to hit the guy, to swear at him. I had to, so after the shock came, how do I respond, you know? And, and this guy was, was a European student in the class. And he thought, because I came from Trinidad in the West Indies, you know, he, he seemed, I couldn't believe it, but he seemed to be genuinely of the thought that we lived in trees, ate bananas. So why would I want to get a degree in quantity surveying? What would I do with that from a treetop eating bananas? Um, and I didn't at the time really connect this with racism. I was really quite new to the reality of these isms. Um, and I thought, I did respond to him, but for the benefit of our listeners, it would not be appropriate for me to say how I responded. So <laughs> but I'll never forget it. I'll never ever forget it. Um, so while it was it, it was difficult to kind of get over that, what helped me to move on from that comment and not sort of retreat back into what he believed I had come from um, was the fact that there were three other uh, classmates from Trinidad and Tobago who helped to keep me grounded. So, and you know, they, they were much older, they had experienced this sort of thing before, and so they recognized it for what it was, and they weren't as shocked as I was. Um, and the fact that I graduated, you know, three years later with my Bachelor of Science degree in quantity surveying with commendation showed that I was able to recover and move on successfully. I had done what I came to do. But I'll never forget the experience, though. Mm. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think I, when I read um, it in the article, I just thought the audacity. Like, where do you actually get the audacity to verbally say that to someone? Yeah. And I think that it highlights such a problem that people actually feel comfortable Yes. Um, saying those kind of things in, in a public space. Yes. And I've had um, a situation similar and it is that shock of, 
did yeah. you actually just say that to me? Yeah. And yeah. the way I want to respond can put me in problems where you're the one in the wrong. Yeah, it's the audacity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. As I say, I'll, I'll never forget it. It has stayed with me, you know, all these decades on because it, it, it was, I, I didn't know whether this guy was genuinely stupid, joking, drunk, mad. I just couldn't make, you know, sometimes you're trying to make sense of something that there is no sense in it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The burden we all <laughs> have to bear. It's kind of like your brain glitches trying to work out like <laughs> what just happened because it's not right. Uh, well, I think um, oh, I, I, the name's just gone from my head. You know the writer about, so you want to talk about race. Oh I my goodness. I don't think I can pronounce that name properly. Oh, the author's name is, I'll, I'm so sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll edit it in, but um, she said, if um, if we believe, if we as people of color say it was a racist incident, it was a racist incident, because I'm sure if, you know, when that, that those versions of the stories that you've just told us now, it happens all the time. But when we tell a certain group of people, they usually say, are you sure they said it that way? Maybe they were drunk or whatever. Yeah. It's like, no. It was racist. Yeah. Um, yeah. But following up from that, Mary, I also just wanted to ask you. So yeah, you were the only black woman, but you were seems like you were the only woman in this like male-dominated area. So uh, you have to deal with like moving to a new country, starting your course, you know, racist incidents, you know, all of the above. So what was it like being the only woman? Well, there was one other um, black woman. She was in a higher class than me studying quantity surveying, but in my class, I was the only black woman. Um, I suppose because I had black male colleagues from my country, the concept of being the only or one of the only black females wasn't something that really gave me a lot of, I took a lot of time to think about then. It was really afterwards in employment mm. that it became. Because of course, in the university, although my class would have only had one or two black females, across the university campus, there were a lot of other black females studying other things. So when you went into the canteen or waiting for the bus, um, the concept of only wasn't that visible or um, impactful, as it were. It, it, it really started becoming um, an issue in employment rather than at university. Interesting. Well, speaking of employment... <laughs> Oh, yeah. You've kind of like touched on this already. Yeah. Um, so kind of, yeah, you have really touched on it. So could you like elaborate on like the challenges that you kind of faced and kind of how did you navigate those spaces where you were kind of seen as the only? Yeah. Um, this is painful. This, this is raw. Um but, you know, it, it, it appeared difficult, not for me, but for many of my white middle-aged male direct reports to accept me as their line manager. You have to remember that my industry is construction and property. 
And in that industry, there are very, very, very few black women who do the jobs that I have done. So the, the, the pool of people that would be within the organizations where I worked of black women would be very small. Um, and although many may apply, not many may even get shortlisted or get the job. So one architect said to me, and, and <laughs> again, I'll never forget this. He said to me that his only encounter thus far with black people were those he saw on television from African tribes. Uh -huh. I found that really hard to believe, but he definitely had a problem that I couldn't solve for him. He had to deal with that. There was nothing, in his mind, it was his turn to get the job. He'd been there for 20 years. I just come in from the outside. I was young and black and female. Ooh, that was just scary. Many staff, not all of them, wrote me off even before I got to some of my jobs, even before I started, because they Googled my name and saw that I was a black woman. Some said she would only last two months. Others said, she does not have a military background. How did she get this job? She's not part of the boys club. Some staff and colleagues undermined my efforts. Some of them held information back and some of them set me up to fail. The concepts of microaggressions, mobbing and the glass cliff became real for me. I was paid significantly less than male comparators because I was younger, black and female. This is hard to prove, but no other plausible reasons were given for the disparities. One white woman stole my identity and committed a fraudulent act in my name which could have cost me my life, my job, and the life of my unborn baby as I was heavily pregnant. She was caught out by the police, disciplined, and I was exonerated, but it took its toll on me for many months. I recall one white male construction worker on a site which I visited. He immediately thought I was a prospective tenant for one of the social housing units. Wow. I could see the blood drain from his face when he realized that I was the person chairing the progress meeting he was attending and that I was the project manager who would determine whether he got paid or not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have experienced racial stereotyping. She is the angry black woman who is overly aggressive, hostile, overbearing, confrontational, and bad-tempered. I have faced the double discrimination of race and gender. So how have I navigated those spaces? How do you navigate entangled systems of oppression? 
and consistently either the only or one of very few senior black women in the workplace, navigating the intertwined barriers at the intersection of race and gender has not been easy for me at all. I have worked harder than my peers to prove myself worthy of acceptance and respect. 12 hour days, including weekends, became the norm for me. I performed well in my work and achieved results that others were not able to, and to a very high standard at that. I achieved social capital with my superiors as a result. I did not feel that I was allowed to make mistakes in the way that my white male counterparts were. I was told on more than one occasion to dampen my personality, dim my light, so that others who look nothing like me would feel more comfortable in my presence and that I would fit into the culture of my workplace. The concept of culture fit is discriminatory. Although I did not feel that I could be my true self at work, I decided that to survive, I had to dare to be different. At times though, the pressure was so great that I held back. I could not find a sponsor, an advocate in my corner with whom I could relate within the organization. So I found one outside of the organization during challenging times. I had to remind myself of all the discrimination my mother had experienced at her workplace and how I was determined, even from a child, when I saw her crying at home, not to let the same thing happen to me. I had to be the best that I could be and succeed for her and for my five children. I displayed a range of emotions at work, including joy, anger, sadness, compassion, trying hard to be myself, to counteract the negative stereotypes. I had to be one step ahead, so I familiarized myself with employment law. I learned how to represent others who had experienced race, sex, and disability discrimination, and in doing so, I learn how to protect myself to a degree. I set up black staff networks to support others like me who had experienced discrimination. Meaningful support, allies, and a loving family were critical to my survival during these difficult chapters. Without these, without these, Without prayer and without my faith in God, I would have been broken beyond repair by now.
like so many of my black sisters. Navigating the spaces of racism involved me calling out incidents, even when I was shouted at for doing so, as well as standing up for others in the way that I wanted them to stand up for me. Being the most senior or only black person or woman in the organizations that I have worked has been very lonely and isolating most times. And it was important for me to have support from outside my workplace. Some of my strength came from those black men and women who navigated the spaces of racism and sexism and intersectionality long before me so that I could be where I am today. Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, as they paved the way for me, I had to pave the way for others. I have focused on the aspects within my sphere of control. My dress, no one could dress like me in the workplace. I was coordinated from my head to my toe. <laughs> my speech pattern, I'm always trying to see the glass half full. I have been a first many times, but I do not want to be the last of any of those firsts. Uh, yeah. I think that definitely needs to be the um, the quote for this episode. And the yeah. last point you made really touched me about having to be coordinated because Claire will know <laughs> that is me. I will know. I, I feel proud of myself saying this, but I know how much like attention to detail I put in my clothing and just looking coordinated. I just the earrings to the socks to the shoes, everything. I just feel just so... Good about myself when I'm the whole lot, the whole shebang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can take on the world. You know, when I power dress, you would always know when I am experiencing stress. I would power dress to the degree where you had to know you couldn't not notice. You had to notice down to the rings. The watches matching the rings, matching the earrings, the glass. I mean, and I would be able to go out no matter how I felt, no matter what the challenge was, and hold my head up and do what I had to do. The mask would be on, but only I would know that it was on. I've, that reminds me of what my friend always says to me. She says, um, it doesn't matter what struggles you're going through. The world doesn't need to know your struggles. So when you step outside, just make sure you're, you're looking your best because you'll, you'll feel it too. Yeah. Um, and the, the last point that you made, I think a lot of women that work in your field would definitely appreciate um, 
your experiences and kind of the how you can share your experiences with others and I think what we're finding is that um, when me and Claire go into the workplace it's like there's not many senior people of colour so it's like it's really hard for us to kind of when you're kind of young it's like you always look to that kind of that older person to kind of like show you the ropes and help you navigate yeah. and um, working in education we were fortunate enough to kind of join a network of women that kind of helped us feel more connected but if I'd never met those women education probably would have been the last place I wanted to step into um, just because it is it is really um, white dominated yeah. um, and when you're kind of trying to be the role model for the next generation it's like I'm doing my best to kind of support you because I don't have that support and when you go into those spaces, you might not have it too. Um, so to hear like people like you that have been through these things, I can always reflect on it and think, you know what, I'm not the only one going through it and I can actually move through it. And I think that's what we need to do is kind of encouraging more people. You're not the only one going through this. And that that's probably like one of um, the reasons why we set up this podcast is to share so many different stories because we've experienced so many different things and we we realize that there's not enough voices being heard and there's a lot of voices that won't speak up because they can't it's like a conversation um there's no one kind of giving that 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 feedback so yeah i really appreciate i really like this um this episode today i mean women of color have a friend in me because I have a son with ADHD. I challenged the education system single-handedly and won for him. So many of our black boys are in the criminal justice system with autism, with ADHD, undiagnosed, excluded from schools. And I was determined that would not happen to my son, whatever the personal cost was. So I talked to parents who had children with ADHD to help them navigate the system. I talked to people who are experiencing discrimination at work. I have fought discrimination. I'm still fighting it. The fight is not over. But if I am to be an example for my children, how could I just walk away and do nothing? So, you know, I am a friend for women who feel I can't cope with this anymore. I have had enough. This pain is too much. My mental health. Talk to me because I have been there. Mm. And the best medicine sometimes isn't a tablet. It's connecting with somebody who you don't even have to tell the whole story to because they can write the rest for you. Mm. That's what we need more of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just want to emphasize, um, I thank you for sharing because I, I mean, we, it, it's not easy. Uh, and, you know, like I, I also felt like touch as you were sharing um, uh, bits, bits, of, bits of your story and I don't even know where to start, but I, I think, I think one thing is um, on the one hand, um, you know, you, you have suffered and you have, you have gone through it. But one thing that's really great to see is that 
the system didn't break you. You've actually come out the other side. And I know it sounds cheesy, but like you're stronger and you have like these mechanisms in place. You have like a support network. Fantastic. That's just so amazing to see. And I know you've accidentally become a trailblazer in your field. And that pressure isn't, I, I mean, you know, you just have to get on with it, right? You don't, you don't have time to think about it. So we really appreciate you uh, being our trailblazers in that sense. And I think one, one other thing um, is that often industries just, well, you know, BAME, we're all supposed to be like one, one group. So it's kind of like, oh, we have a, oh yeah, no one likes it. So except for maybe white people who've invented it. But um, so, you know, if there's like a, black executive in grade whatever it kind of seems to be like okay bame person take off done which we hate but also in a weird kind of way sabrina mentioned our um women network earlier it's kind of weird because we've kind of embraced us being othered and come together so that's been positive in that sense but you know it's I mean, we. I honestly don't even know how to articulate this because it just, you know, everything that you've gone through, it will ultimately set up. And it's probably still now a journey for someone else. And I mean, you were, you are the first, I can't believe I'm saying this, but you're the first uh, Black female director of estates, right? And hello, it's like 2020. <laughs> what, I read yeah. that when Giannina sent me the article, I read that and I just thought... This has been fantastic. I'm so happy. But why has it taken so long? I just can't believe this. And you have a very accomplished career. Like, why didn't they just tap you in the first place? Like, why? So those are my, like, raw reactions. Just thank you. And it's very positive, though. I I know it was very um, burdening burdening to you. (laughs) And congratulations, obviously. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. I think my reaction was similar to Claire's. I think when I read like your title, I was like, really? Really? How? And it's just, cause you know, like with that industry, you know, it's always male dominated. So it's like, and you're the head as well. But I like, I was cheering for you. And cause I hadn't met you yet. I was like, yeah. you, know, you, you know how different industries are dominated by a certain group. You, I think you don't need to be in that industry to know the struggle. And exactly. people kind of get into the top. And mm-hmm. I think when I read your article, I thought, I, I can't even imagine the, the hell that that journey would have been because mm. of how, when you think of a woman kind of anything to do with construction, it's just like, oh, mm-hmm. what, what, does, what does she know about this? Oh, but then no. not only were you in that environment as a female, you was in that environment as a black female. And now you're, at the top so it's just like um from being considered at the bottom it's just like well instead of looking down you need to look up because that that's where I am (laughs) and I think that that would have been a hard pill to swallow Mm -hmm. it's just like you're looking at a picture and someone tells you you're holding it upside down and it's like oh Mm -hmm. this is a real picture Mm -hmm. so I think that alone is just inspiring Mm -hmm. absolutely um and I, we really appreciate also, um, you know, I mean, I think once women who, and like 
black women and women of color, um, you know, once you, if you manage to break the ceiling, there's a glass cliff and you have to be very careful with like your image or because you, you become the, as I mentioned before, you're the trailblazer. So people kind of do, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. well, she said that. So all black women must say that, you know, and it's a lot yeah. of pressure, but we do really appreciate that you've actually been vocal on quite a number of contemporary issues. So like advocating for your son, which is extremely important. Uh, you're not afraid to use your voice, which is again, like just mm-hmm. inspiring. So um, speaking of contemporary issues, so um, in an opinion piece you wrote in June 16th of this year um, for building, you said construction firms do not need another racial inequality mm-hmm. review to tell them what to do. We know what makes a difference now. Let's get on with it. And I was just like, yes. Um, so I know you obviously mentioned the sector, but you know your proactive recommendations in this article relevant in like all sectors. So. Um, you know, as a leader in the community, you took up this like burden of trying to make suggestions and raising awareness. So um, do you believe that the recent Black Lives Matter movement is actually a true white wake up call that we needed? What, what do you think about that? Not really. Um, I believe that white supremacists know enough to recognize that there is something wrong and that black lives are in danger, but they turn black lives matter into all lives matter because Mm. that is their escapist mentality. We need to see people with our hearts Mm. and not just our eyes. There have been black lives matter wake up calls before this most recent one over decades. The only difference I see is that more notice might have been taken this time due to the coronavirus pandemic lockdowns, where people might have had more time and space to listen and reflect on the voices of protest against the backdrop of the disproportionate number of COVID-19 deaths of people from the black communities. The conflation of these issues, I hope, would have achieved a degree of wake up for our white privileged brothers and sisters. But very little progress, I think, has been made over the decades. And I cannot see that another review will say anything different to what David Lamy's review said three to four years ago, to what so many other reviews which are now gathering dust on shelves. And it really is about people deciding whether or not they wish to see black people as equal to them, or continue to see black people as a threat and inferior. That's a personal decision that people have to make. Even legislation won't be able to change that. It's a personal decision. And it starts with me. It starts with each of us. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sabrina, I'm just like, nodding in agreement. Um, I think everything you said was spot on. Um, take away Corona, and it's just another black person dying in America. Um, 
and then the narrative continues and we all go about our day-to-day business and I think now we're probably at the point where it's there's no point waiting for people to to wake up and realize that oh maybe maybe black lives are important I think now we just need to kind of focus on empowering ourselves and having the knowledge to navigate these spaces knowing what our rights are and challenging um these behaviors and calling it out when it happens instead of kind of taking a moment and going home and then sitting at home and realizing oh what you were just racist to me in the kitchen but i'm at home now and the whole day's gone by but we've we've got so used to kind of dismissing racism and it's like why should i dismiss it because if i do something wrong I've probably lost my job. So I think now we just need to kind of defend ourselves with the knowledge and not wait for anybody to to accept us. We need to um, kick down the doors like you've been doing and keep paving the way for everyone else because I think that's what happens. They get uncomfortable because yeah. once one comes through the door, they'll be like, oh, is any is any more of them coming? And it's like, yeah, there are more of us coming. So step aside. And I think that's that's what we need to keep doing. And, and, you know, and we're coming and we're coming in on numbers. You know, I just give thanks to God. Um, I was the first in my family to go to university. You know, I never knew anything about university when I was growing up. Well, what was that? You know, um, and within my my own family, you know, I, I just I, I'm just so grateful to God. You know, my Janina, my first child, you've 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 met her. <laughs> I think we did. <laughs> My second child is uh, a primary school teacher, um, now doing her master's in education. My third child has just opened in COVID his own chiropractic clinic. Wow. After five years of working in a practice. Um, And uh, my fourth child is the one who had ADHD who the, the secondary school teacher said to him, you know, you, you shouldn't be going to a mainstream school. We fought, got him in, um, graduated from Cambridge University in engineering this year, you know, oh, within two months of, of graduating. And my last daughter is at university in her second year. So, you know, these, these the, the trailblazing is permeating. You know, yeah. and still, my son, who is the chiropractor, is the first black male clinical director of chiropractic in the UK. Ooh, amazing. <laughs> how did you, it's like... I know. How did you do this? I'm like counting. It's just like, how did you do five, this? Did I count five children? How did you raise five children and get to where you want to be and deal with all these racist people? And like, how do you not? How are you not in prison? <laughs> I know. Like, people ask me that question all the time, and I say to them, "Look, when you don't have a choice, you get on with it. When you have a choice." You make the choice. I didn't have a choice. Mm. So it's not an issue to think about. You just get on with it. I say to people, the reason I've cut my hair, my hair is long. I had long hair. There are pictures of me in my album with long hair. But the military precision I had to apply to get my children out in the morning at a certain time and myself to work on time. I couldn't be faffing about 
with gel and all sorts. And I took the decision and I thought, it doesn't matter how I look, my children come first. And it turns out that it's grown on me. But, you know, the sacrifices, I, I, I had a live-in nanny for them rather than taking them out um, to nurseries or childminders. And I wanted to keep my career and I wanted them to have the best care that I could because I knew in the industry that I was, if I had um, paused my career for too long, it would have been impossible once they grew up for me to get back in. So I had to find the best compromise. And most of the times when I would sit at home in tears at what my employers had done to me and all the grievances that had been raised against me and all the anonymous letters that had been written where people were too afraid to show their racist heads and decided to hide behind an anonymous letter. I thought I could give up or I could carry on for the sake of my children. And I chose to fight and to stand up for the sake of my children and the sake of my mother, because I promised myself that the discrimination she faced, I would fight for her today. So I couldn't turn back. There wasn't a choice. Well, to, to be honest, I don't actually like that question, how do you do it all? And it's you'll notice it's always women. We always get, well, I mean, I don't, we don't have kids, me and Sabrina don't have kids, but, um, you know, women always get asked this question and it's almost like the standard. And it's, as you say, like, of course you had to just do it. What were you going to do? Um, but which, which, um, and I, I did notice that um, there is a significant difference in how, um, white woman answer this question um versus versus other women which I, I think speaks a lot and is a separate topic but um i just wanted to quickly react to um what you said about black lives matter what serena said about how it's not time to now self-preserve get on with it um educate yourself and fight back um i think one thing that i've noticed you know as as an asian person well i guess East Asian to be more specific is I think a lot of uh, Asian people still aren't on board with Black Lives Matter. And so I think just I'd like to emphasize again, because this movement is so important and to continue the conversation that in the UK and the in the US, um, the group of people who are being marginalized and who are suffering are Black people. That is the reality. Therefore, Everyone needs to be on board. Of course, in reality, all lives matter, but that is literally not the point of Black Lives Matter. I just have to emphasize it again because I've I've been seeing literature online about when Black Lives Matter hashtags comes up, you know, certain like movements and age, like, you know, Asian people are suffering too, blah, blah, blah. Yes, of course, everyone's suffering. I agree with that. However, the focus of this movement is who needs attention the most and it's black people, we need to up the black voices right now. Um, so I'm not sure if you two have seen reactions, because I know when we talk about race, it's often black and white. So I wonder if you have seen reactions from the Latinx communities or, or Asian communities in that regard, because in my opinion, there's still a lot of work needs to be done within those inter, inter communities. Um, Sorry, Sabrina, carry on. Oh, I was going to say, I'd let you go first, um, Mary. I think you're absolutely right. But 
you asked about have we seen reactions. I think what has spoken quite loudly is the lack of reaction as opposed to actual reaction. And the, the point about that I, I, I mentioned earlier, the reason why the Black Lives Matter is so important is because Black lives are in danger. How many white policemen do you see with their knees on the necks of mm. Asian exactly. or other people of color? Not many. It's not reported in the news. We don't see. How many do you see for black people dying in police custody, dying because they've been restrained inappropriately? How many non-black people do you hear pleading, I cannot breathe? So for me, the sadness is in the lack of response rather than the quality of the little response. And that indifference is what is the problem. Yes. Because if this was about uh, our Asian brothers and sisters and the black community were silent, they would talk about our indifference. And mm. it's time for us to realize that, that this, this black, Asian, and minority ethnic, if we were to pander to it, is a majority. <laughs> yeah. Is a majority. Yeah. But only if we make it that by coming together for each individual cause. Yeah. And until that happens, BAME should not be used at any time anywhere in any place because it is meaningless and it is a cover for doing nothing yes um sorry sabrina i know you have to say something but um just yes um i just wanted to maybe this i know this was said again but i just wanted to have bring up this conversation again because it's been how many months now since June and George Floyd's murder has, you know, has surfaced. And it, this conversation is being like watered down. Um, but I think you've just highlighted it, which is indifference, you know, with then our other communities and allies, you know, like being afraid to speak up or not speaking up. Or I've seen divisions within, as I mentioned earlier, the community is like, but but like we're suffering too. And it's like, that's literally not the point. Um, so I really just wanted to emphasize this again, to just remind um, listeners and friends that this is still ongoing. There's still a lot of work to do. And I know there's, you know, some, some positive things that have come out of it, um, but it's it's still ongoing. Just wanted to emphasize that. Sorry, Sabrina, what were you going to say? Um, well, there's just there's a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I'm gonna try and keep it short and sweet. Um, I think, yeah, we definitely all do need to come together. I think one of the biggest problems or one of the biggest things I've noticed online is there's a too much tit for tat. So it's um I know that when I've seen a, um some negativity on like posts about Black Lives Matter. 
um, some of the way that some black people can respond to things, I'm like, we're here trying to fight a cause and we need as much support as we can. You describing an Asian per person in such a way that, you know, that's racist too. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, um, I think people need to stop saying that black people can't be racist because we can. It's and really the way, racist. yeah, and I think there's too much, like, no one cares unless it's happening on their doorstep. So it's like, yeah, that absolutely. does that hasn't happened to us. But weren't we, weren't we all kind of colonised the same way? Weren't we all kind of snatched from here and there? Weren't bombs dropped here and like are we forgetting that we have experienced similar things just in different parts of the world but just because um we're going through this particular thing right now doesn't mean you should ignore it because it's not exactly happening to you because it couldn't happen to you and you were still discriminated as well it's just you're discriminated in in a way that you're probably not losing your life every day over it I think there's too much oh well it's not happening and I think I totally agree with trying to change them, trying to change the narrative to all lives matter. And it's like, but you didn't care about all lives until we started shouting about yeah. our life. And if you um, are facing your own kind of injustice and it was really that bad, then why haven't you been protesting? Why haven't I seen marches um, for over, over the years of this and that? When I know, like, women's like things that women face is completely different to kind of some of the things that go with racism but when women were facing inequality what did what did we get up and do in the past we kind of like we 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 got our vote and we got our rights and we've been fighting like people that face disabilities they're doing it in their own kind of way and I think we do need to kind of support people because it's it's about uplifting the voice and if you've got a small group of people shouting then their voice isn't going to get heard. But if you're all kind of shouting, then we're going to we're, we're going to make movements. And it all comes. It really does come down to edu- um, education. Yeah. Educate yourself on where people come from and what people have experienced. There's so many people that are just spreading false information. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And a big problem is the education system. We're not taught history properly. We're taught like a whitewash version of history. Oh, so yeah. like you for growing up with uh, misconceptions on how certain people are and that does breed prejudice and racism because you don't you don't know um but then when does it get to a point where it's ignorance and a lack of understanding mm-hmm. um and i think that's the problem that we're dealing with is that there's a lot of people that are very ignorant to racism and then until we, until we move away from me myself and i you see yeah. in my experience People remain indifferent because life's sweet, everything's sweet with them. They're employed, they go home, it's not on their doorstep, it's somewhere else. They look at the news and say, oh, poor thing. I'm so sorry about that. You know, that's terrible, isn't it? Oh, what a shame. And carry on the next day. When something similar as or as painful happens to them, they're looking around to see all the people who are supporting them. But you know something, you know something? When you don't give your heart and stand up for others, don't be surprised when you need help. And believe you me, there will be a time in all of our lives when we need help. If there's nobody out there to help us, we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Where was I when my brother or sister needed somebody 
to speak out, to stand in solidarity. Why am I standing on my own now? Because you didn't do it for anybody else. Yeah. That, that reminds me of this story that um, I got told when I was little and it was called Chicken Licking. I don't know if you've um, heard it. You probably haven't, Claire. But yeah. Chicken Licking is about a chicken and Chicken Licking is going to bake uh, bread. So she's like on a farm and she goes to all the different farm animals, asking them for like help with different ingredients. Mm -hmm. So she can bread. No one wants to help Chicken Licking until Chicken Licking has this bread at the end and all the animals come together to eat her bread. And she's like, no. And I, that's like a kid's book. And I just remember it was such a powerful story. Yeah. And you go through life kind of asking for help and you might get turned down, but you've got to keep, you've got to keep going until you get your finished mm -hmm. product. And mm -hmm. the amount of people that, it's like, I don't know what it is. People can sniff your success in the air. doesn't mm -hmm. matter where you are, but they can smell your success. Mm -hmm. And I think the more you're radiating success, the more people gravitate to you and try and latch onto your success mm -hmm. without yeah. contributing to it. Yeah. And I think what's been nice, again, like with this podcast is kind of like the women that I work with and the women I get to meet. And I did the way that we empower ourselves and we're all at different stages in life. Yeah. We've all kind of had different experiences come from across the world. And just the way we're able to kind of empower people. So like when you do feel success, you've got your cheerleaders that have been rooting for your success and it makes it that much sweeter. And yeah. you know that even if you're not successful, they're still cheering you on to kind of be continuing. It's like the cheering doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we need to, more of us need to surround ourselves with these kind of people yeah. that yeah. Are, we, need to, we all need cheerleaders. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Each one cheer one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that. that's why um, we, you know, it's, it's really hard to, like we have friends who are allies. We have women, female friends who are allies, but they're very reluctant to speak up on these issues because, and I think it, it's a larger issue. Like one, women in general are kind of, if you know, if you speak speak too much, it's like, oh, you're you're bossy, you're bitchy, um, or you're you're show offy, or, you know, there, there's a host of reasons why that being silent is a default. And then for me, like I I also felt like I can't speak on race issues because I'm Asian, like, but I know that's actually like a white construct set on purpose um so you know I, I just named two reasons so it, it's been really nice lately you know having you on Mary and other female friends on willing to talk about this stuff because we really need to contribute to this discussion like we need to actually confirm and validate what we've been experiencing oh that is actually racism oh we can't actually move through with this um because like the um we actually when we talked about beauty and love, we kind of decided society and men are perpetuating beauty and love stereotypes. Um, the same forces are perpetuating our racial divides and all these stereotypes, which is just infuriating. So speaking of contemporary issues, do you want to ask um, Mary the last question, Sabrina? Yeah, um, so th this is a good question to round it all off. It's um, what advice would you give to young women who are experiencing like similar microaggressions? Um, the same advice I give myself, because I'm forever young. You see, I, I refuse to get old, you know. And this is why I work with um, young people, um, to keep myself current and, uh, you know. So first of all, on a more serious point, I would say to young people, understand what microaggressions are. 
and identify when you are experiencing them so that you do not, out of ignorance, support, normalize, and encourage them by inaction. Mm. They are often small, subtle, and difficult to pinpoint, stemming from the perpetrator's belief in the myth of black inferiority. The constant interruptions when you are in a meeting by your white colleagues, being told that your male counterpart is paid more than you because your roles are different, the assumption that all black women have the same experiences and the same names and come from Africa, tone policing, labeling us as aggressive. I was told that I was lucky to hold such a high power position as if I didn't deserve it. It was out of luck rather than merit. Tokenism, if we hire her, it would make the company look good and it would make us look as though we're committed to equal opportunities. Let's tick the box. The insinuation that there is a lack of qualified black women to apply for certain jobs. I saw once a job description and a person spec altered when the human resource person said, we have to lower the qualifications to attract more black people. Uh, what? <laughs> we have to lower the qualifications to attract more black people. Can you believe that in 2020? Oh, this happened in 2020? In 2020. I carry on. <laughs> using the color, using the term black when you want to define something bad. Blacklisting, black hole, black sheep. Ensure microaggressions are called out. That is a strong piece of advice. Racism must be pointed out wherever and whenever it occurs, no matter who the perpetrator is or how senior they might be. Not enough of this is done. Act upon your concerns is also my advice. Speak to someone, anyone, about your concerns and find a way to let the perpetrators know that you know what they are doing and that it is not acceptable to you, so it must stop. Find a way. If you have to send a pigeon with a note on its foot, if you have to write an anonymous letter, find a way. It doesn't always have to be direct, but there is always a way. If your action does not cause the person to stop, take further action. Escalate. Keep going. Doing nothing is not an option as it normalizes discriminatory behavior and makes it more difficult for the person after you to deal with it. 
It's not just about me. It's about those coming after me. Just like it was not just about our forefathers and foremothers, but it was about those coming. Can you imagine if Rosa Parks got up when she was told to? Can you imagine where history would have been if Martin Luther King decided to stay in his living room, look at the television and go, yeah, I agree, Black Lives Matter. Yes, isn't it a shame? Oh, how terrible. You know, let's go and have lunch. <laughs> yes. Can you imagine where you and I would be? And that's the thing we need to think about all the time. So I know that dealing with discrimination on your own can be extremely difficult. I know from living experience. And I know that it can be wearing. So think about getting a sponsor from within your organization or a coach or a mentor from outside your organization. You might be able to secure the necessary resources for this through your performance appraisals with your seniors. Read every policy and procedure in your organization's handbook on diversity, equality, and inclusion. Even if you fall asleep halfway, <laughs> hold your managers to account in adhering to them and to other national standards. You would not be asking for any more than you are due contractually. You're not asking for a favor. And finally, but equally important, change jobs if and when necessary. If it's not working for you, you don't work for it. Wow. No, those were, uh, yeah. that was amazing advice. I feel like, uh, I feel like me, me and Claire could have done with, with this talk uh, <laughs> yeah. probably last year or the year before. I feel like it could have got us through something at work. Um, yeah. Thank you. I think Claire will echo me and she'll probably say it as well. But um, the, the advice that you have like dished out across this whole episode has been invaluable and I already know already like the impact that this conversation has had on me and I think as well all of us during this time of kind of being confined to our houses and the uncertainty around things I think this is this is the advice that a lot of people need to kind of keep pushing and to kind of I wouldn't say keep dealing but keep managing with the situation that they're in and kind of find better solutions in it so yeah Thank you. And I'll let Claire wrap this up. <laughs> I would just say one more thing to encourage both of you in what you do. Not enough young people think of themselves as great. Let me tell you something. Claire and Sabrina, you are great. You are leaders. It's not always about seniority or high power, but today you have made a difference in my life. That's what leadership is about. That's what greatness is. 
And if there's any situation that is making you feel different to that, I ask you to stare it in the face and tell it where to go. You are great, you are special, you are making a difference. And there is a song that my mother taught me that impacts my whole life. If I can help somebody as I pass along, then my living shall not be in vain. You are helping and making a difference. Your life is not in vain. God bless you. Oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. I feel like I need a hug. <laughs> oh my gosh. We had no idea yeah. that you could sing. <laughs> I, wow, what can't you do? Um, no, seriously, thank you so much for your words. And um, maybe I'll edit this out, but so, so two, two things. So one, what you emphasize about do, don't do nothing. Um, I think just in my personal campaigns, I've been trying to work more within like Asian communities to just work on like allyship. So I think I just want to like highlight, underline, bold that message. Like don't do nothing. Cause I think we've just been societally conditioned to, if it doesn't affect you, don't do anything. But no, we just can't afford to do that. You know, especially with like COVID um, and it, it just, I think like also like being from the U S like reading these stories, like every, single day oh young black woman um a young black boy has gone out for a jog and it's just like why why um so i i know it's not easy to talk about your personal journey and about these race questions it's not fun it's not easy it's difficult it's scarring but thank you for digging and talking about those issues with us because again we really just want to emphasize how crucial it is and it's 2020 yes we're still talking about it um I, I mean we're pretty positive we'd like to hope that because there's no excuse not to look at literature there's so many resources that maybe we'll get to a point where <laughs> it, it, it will get better um but speaking of that positive note um can you just tell us how you practice self-care and well, obviously you have a great voice. So maybe like you draw energy from like singing, like we, we don't know, but where do you draw your energy from? Well, self-care was not always my top priority. There were times when work was my top priority as I shared before. And in some cases, my only priority to my detriment. Not now though. I try to ensure I get sufficient sleep. I am early to bed, early to rise person. I try to ensure that my paid work, and I'm currently changing jobs, changing careers, is about 25% of my life, 25%. And the other 75% spent on family, friends, hobbies, volunteering, and myself. I have regular adjustments from my son, who is a doctor of chiropractic. This helps me to move and live. Quite yes. 
<laughs> Yum. I love cooking traditional West Indian food. I'm a good cook. So I eat well and I feed my family, my neighbors, anybody who's hungry, I feed them well. I can take on the world when I power dress. I talked about that before. My lipsticks are very important. I have lipsticks that match every outfit. <laughs> I love singing. I absolutely love singing. I founded and I lead a youth and a Caribbean music ministry in my church. Ah, it's awesome. We started off as seven people. Now we're 45 in three oh, years. Wow, it's amazing. I love shopping around for the best deals on food and other stuff. I find this quite therapeutic. It takes my mind off things that might be worrying me. It's quite refreshing. I have learned that spending time with my husband and my children is my best therapy and makes me happy. They make me laugh and I'm so very proud of all of them. My greatest energy though is drawn from God himself through prayer and the Bible and my church community. And in a few weeks time, I look forward to Christmas with my family, which includes my daughter's husband who is white male and one of my son's girlfriends who is from the Philippines. Oh. Amazing, you know, and uh, we are able as a family to talk about race, to talk about love, to talk about intersectionality. I'm learning from them. They're learning from us. What more could Mary ask for? Thank you so much. Oh, man. You're just like a ray of inspiration and positivity. Like We both love this. Thank you for giving us your time. Um, you just loved it. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. My pleasure. My pleasure. If it if 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 it inspires somebody to keep going, to recognize their worth, and not to let people who think they're superior crush you, then it was worth it. Sabrina, do you want to say anything else? I think I just can't just can't thank you enough. And yeah. it's, been, it's been a great um, experience. I think if anybody asked me a few years ago, would I be on a podcast? I would have said no. And the way I kind of ended up in the podcast was just it was just so random and pure luck. Um, so, but I now live for these kind of moments where you're able to kind of connect with someone and yeah. learn so much about where they've been and um, where they're going. And yeah. yeah, I think this way of kind of connecting with others, it's, I think more people should do it. Yeah. Then you go further in life with the more conversations you have. Yeah. And this is definitely one of those yeah. conversations which is going to take me somewhere. Yeah.